This podcast is a production of Open Pediatrics, an open access online community of healthcare professionals sharing best practices from around the world. Visit openpediatrics.org for more. Welcome to Open Pediatrics World Shared Practice Forum podcast. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Professor at Harvard Medical School. We're very pleased to have with us today Dr. Mark Hall. Dr. Hall is the Chief of Critical Care at Nationwide Children's Hospital, where he is also the Development Board Endowed Chair in Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Hall is also Professor of Pediatrics at The Ohio State University. Mark, welcome. So happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Mark, you are known around the world by colleagues as being one of the most prolific investigators of the inflammatory response in critically ill children. We just heard you give a wonderful critical care grand rounds here, and you reviewed the history of what we know about the inflammatory response. Could we start there? Absolutely. I think about this field with great respect because there are giants in the field that have come before me, certainly, including my mentor, Joe Carcillo, and others before him, Roger Bone, and others, Hans-Dieter Volk in Germany. But collectively, we still struggle to understand things as simple as how an individual's immune and inflammatory response to a pro-inflammatory insult like sepsis should drive their therapies. So in 2020, we came out with the most current version of the surviving sepsis guidelines for children. These are you know, practice management guidelines for septic kids. And remarkably, in 2020, there is little, if any, attention paid to individualized therapy that differentiates patients one from another based upon their physiology. Yet we know that there are different subtypes and different phenotypes of sepsis immunobiology in adults and children I'm, of course, more familiar with the pediatric data, but I think the adult data are informative. So if you hearken back to the 1980s and the 1990s, there was a profusion of clinical trials, phase two and phase three, evaluating anti-inflammatory therapies, or at least therapies that were designed to reduce the inflammatory response in adults with sepsis. These trials focused on the removal or blockade of either pathogen-directed molecules like LPS, for example, or host pro-inflammatory molecules like TNF-alpha, IL-1-beta, and others. And these nearly uniformly failed, some with increasing risks of adverse outcomes associated with their use. And these approaches to the immunomodulation of sepsis largely withered on the vine because nobody wanted to pursue them anymore. And in reflecting back on those studies, it's remarkable to me that we as a field thought that we could give a single therapeutic to an entirely heterogeneous population of critically ill patients and expect a signal. Now, we know a lot more about the heterogeneity of the immune response now than they did then. But even so, to this day, when I have a patient that comes into my intensive care unit, I largely treat them the same as it relates to supporting their immune health and promoting immunologic homeostasis. Well, Mark, you know, you're so eloquent the way you say that, it's almost hard to grasp it, that we're still doing RCTs where we're treating everybody the same. We're assuming they all have the same physiology. Let's go a little further, as you said, phenotypes, subphenotypes. What's that story? How should we understand the evolution of that and what should we understand about it today? Well, I like your use of the word evolution. I think that there is some biology that has evolved over the millennia that inform our body's response to a pro-inflammatory insult. We are all familiar with the systemic inflammatory response syndrome. 
whether it's sepsis, trauma, cardiopulmonary bypass, or any other pro-inflammatory insult, we're very comfortable standing at the foot of the bed, looking at the patient, and recognizing fever, capillary leak, tachycardia, tachypnea, and all of the canonical signs and symptoms of SIRS. And it's true that if the SIRS response is brief, modest, the patient is likely to do well, and if the SIRS response is persistent and severe, the patient's likely to do poorly. This has been demonstrated across a number of clinical groups in adults and children. What we've learned over the last 20 years, the last you know, 10 or 15 in particular, is that concurrent with this systemic inflammatory response syndrome, there is nearly universally a compensatory anti-inflammatory response system, or CARS, that modulates the immune response in a way that, if it works well, restores the patient to immunologic homeostasis. So it shuts off the pro-inflammatory response, and then, if things work well, the CARS response is brief, self-limited, and the patient is now able to respond to a new challenge, is able to heal tissues, remodel injured tissues, and life goes on. But that doesn't always happen. So there I am standing at the foot of the bed of the septic patient. While I can tell if there is a SIRS phenotype by clinical markers and, and some biochemical markers, I can't tell clinically if a patient has a severe compensatory anti-inflammatory response because there is no clinical phenotype. So I am left to rely on laboratory testing. Now, the testing that's currently available in the clinical laboratory really isn't sufficiently sensitive or specific to diagnose uh, the immunoparalyzed phenotype or the severe critical illness-induced immune suppression phenotype. You need specialized testing that's currently in the research environment, though becoming increasingly available to investigators around the world. And we can get into that in a minute, what the details of those testing parameters are. But I think it's really important to resolve a paradox that was challenging to me, certainly, when I was starting to study this, and it's challenging to a lot of folks to whom I speak on this subject, and that is, how can you have systemic inflammation and hypoactive immune cells? Because after all, the compensatory anti-inflammatory response syndrome is really characterized by hypoactivity of circulating immune cells. Yet, in these very same patients, I'm measuring very high levels of circulating pro-inflammatory mediators. How can one have one and the other at the same time? And many patients do. Well, I believe the answer is that for the patients who have high degrees of systemic inflammation in the context of very suppressed circulating immune cells, that systemic inflammation is coming from somewhere else. That systemic inflammation is coming from stressed or injured vascular endothelium, injured and infected parenchymal cells, it, and it is the smoldering afterglow of the original insult compounded by ongoing tissue injury. So the patients that I used to stand at the bedside and look at and think they were dying in the context of an overly active immune response, many of them were in fact dying in the context of a severely impaired host immune response in a way that wasn't clinically apparent nor would be apparent historically. These are a priori immunocompetent kids, as far as I can tell. The distinction that you've just made between the pro-inflammatory response and the immune paralysis phenomenon is fascinating. You know, I've been trying to follow the story. Roger Bohm pointed this out, as you noted. But as you're noting, we can't identify it easily at the bedside. So where do we go from here? 
So the way we're approaching this in the research laboratory, and the way the field, frankly, has approached this, is to evaluate the ability of the innate immune system, the, the monocyte macrophage lineage, for example, to respond to a new challenge and engage with the adaptive or lymphocyte-based arm of the immune system. The earliest example of this was the measurement of what we call class II MHC molecules on the cell surface of these antigen-presenting cells. You may remember that the innate immune system, among other things, is responsible for the ingestion and processing of antigens and presentation of those antigens on their cell surface on very specific biomarkers to engage the lymphocytes and therefore complete the innate and adaptive immune response to an offending agent. Well, these class II MHC molecules, the one that we've studied most often is HLA-DR, these molecules are upregulated and downregulated on the cell surface of these antigen-presenting cells in response to their CARS state. So a monocyte, for example, that's healthy will express HLA-DR on 95, 98% of the, the cells. That's very strongly expressed. So these HLA-DR molecules are expressed on 95 to 98% of circulating monocytes in the state of health. Some people are even measuring the number of molecules per cell of HLA-DR on monocytes, and we're beginning to gain some understanding of what thresholds are important there. But the real important thing is that immunoparalyzed monocytes don't express these antigens and these antigen-presenting molecules, and therefore cannot express antigen to the adaptive arm of the immune system. To measure that requires flow cytometry, and it's a bit laborious. We have tried to use this on a multi-center platform, and there are newer ways to preserve white blood cells in special tubes to allow for centralized staining and acquisition, but it's still rather laborious. We have chosen in our research program to focus more fully on a more functional readout of the innate immune system. So, as usual, you look healthy and robust in your chair there. I bet if I took your blood, and I measured the amount of TNF-alpha, pro-inflammatory cytokine, in your bloodstream, it would be undetectable. But if I took that same blood sample and I put it in a tube with highly standardized lipopolysaccharide, or LPS, a very potent monocyte stimulant, that blood would get very angry very quickly and make enormous amounts of this TNF-alpha cytokine. If it doesn't, there's a problem. It means that your leukocytes are unable to respond to a new challenge, and that leaves you at risk for any initial infection you might present with, as well as at risk for the development of new infections, and it is a surrogate marker for inability to promote healing uh, at the tissue level. So this TNF-alpha response, or TNF response assay, has become the workhorse of our research program. And we have developed small blood volume, high throughput approaches, such that we can ship kits to interested collaborating centers, have the investigators at those sites enroll subjects in their target population, perform a very simple laboratory maneuver, the sterile addition of 50 microliters of blood into two of these tubes, incubate them for four hours, spin down the tube, and send me the supernatants on dry ice. That, combined with some interrogation of plasma and serum biomarkers to evaluate systemic inflammation, really forms the backbone of what we're doing in our research program to categorize patients into those that have immunoparalysis, particularly those with not so severe inflammation that I would be reluctant to give them an immune stimulant, or those with hyperinflammation, 
that seems to be driving their immune phenotype or normal immune function with modest inflammation. I wouldn't want to enroll that child in a clinical trial, certainly wouldn't want to randomize them because they'd be highly unlikely to benefit from immunomodulation. And lastly, we have interest in populations of patients that are likely to have something else going on. And the something else that we're really keyed in on in recent years is the family of disorders like secondary HLH, macrophage activation syndrome, severe hyperferritinemic sepsis. Multiple terms have been thrown around for this population of patients. But we really would not want to withhold an anti-inflammatory therapy from such a patient. So I wouldn't want to enroll them in a clinical trial that could allocate them to a placebo arm. So we are very much interested in identifying the hyperinflamed, the very hyperinflamed, the normal, and the immunoparalyzed. And now we've gotten to where we can do that in less than 24 hours with sites all around North America. Mark, can we recap? Because as articulate as you are, there's so much there. Let's see if we can break that out a little bit. So 25, 30 years ago, but up to the present day, as you noted, we principally think in the field of critical care that this is really the uncontrolled pro-inflammatory response leading to all of these problems for our septic patients. And then, of course, it's identified, as we've discussed, by the late Dr. Roger Bone and all of his predecessors, including Joe Carcillo and you in the pediatric field and Hector Wong, that no, the patients may look the same, but actually there's a subset of patients having very different responses, immune paralysis. But it's not easy to see. So let me see if I've got this right. The monocytes, which are a critical part, as you just said, of the innate immune response for antigen presentation, they lose function with especially these antigens on their external cell wall, the HLA-DR. Why are they involuting? What's the trigger for that? Does anybody know? I think without a doubt, the trigger of the CARS response is that initial SIRS response. So there are multiple counter-regulatory mechanisms, some internal to the cell, some external to the cell in the form of circulating anti-inflammatory cytokines like IL-10, TGF-beta, and others. There, it really is a strong pressure on the part of the cell to turn off the pro-inflammatory response that was turned on initially. And I think that's what we're seeing, but to a much greater degree than is beneficial for the host. And at a mechanistic level, you described the trigger, but is it understood why, what is the trigger mechanistically for the monocyte to turn from this wonderful antigen-presenting cell because it's got all these proteins in the form of HLA-DR again, and then suddenly they're losing, as it were, the arms that are kind of reaching out to the adaptive immune response. What, what's the mechanism? Is it understood? So it is not completely understood at all, but we and others have gained some insight into that by noticing upregulation of internal counter-regulatory mechanisms. As you know, any biological on switch has an off switch. And this is true outside the cell, this is true inside the cell. In monocytes, for example, there are dummy receptors that block and turn off NF-kappa-B signaling. There are a number of negative regulators of the inflammatory response in the cell. And those negative regulators are in fact upregulated upon the activation of the cell's pro-inflammatory response. And we are just barely beginning to understand how things like epigenetic influences might predispose a given person or even a given cell to have a pronounced anti-inflammatory response in the aftermath of a pro-inflammatory insult as Tim Cornell and Tom Shanley so nicely showed in a cardiopulmonary bypass. 
Okay, so let's keep going here. Then you had taken us into really the clinical investigation that you're doing known as the PRECISE trial. That's coming out of the CAPCORN network where you're one of the PIs. Could you talk to us a little bit about the CAPCORN network? I'll be happy to. The Collaborative Pediatric Critical Care Research Network, or CAPCORN, is in its fourth funding cycle through NICHD, and it's the only NIH-funded network that is dedicated to the study of critically ill and injured children. This cycle of CAPCORN, which was competed in 2020, is different from prior ones in that the network was much enlarged, so the network now is encompassing 24 clinical sites and a coordinating center, the latter at the University of Utah. And the backbone of that network application had to be a transformative clinical trial. And I was fortunate to have a wonderful group of collaborators and investigators that agreed to have a personalized medicine approach to immunomodulation be that backbone for the CAPCORN network. And we are now actively executing the PRECISE study, which is short for Personalized Immunomodulation in Pediatric Sepsis-Induced Mods. So you're PI in this large clinical trial. You're learning from the science by personalizing this, as it were. So it's got several arms. Yes. So take us first to the immune paralysis arm. When are these patients enrolled? How do you know they've got immune paralysis? And then what's the therapeutic intervention? Well, importantly, when we enroll the subjects into the precise research program, the precise study, we don't know what their immunophenotype is. So we don't know which embedded clinical trial they will find themselves. So at that point, we're focused on the patient who has unresolving MODs in the context of sepsis. Multiple organ dysfunctions. Correct. And so these are children who have at least two organs that are dysfunctional by a modified version of the PRU scoring system, which is very rigorous. And so these are the sickest of the sick septic kids. And so the children are sampled, not on day one, but on the third calendar day of MODs. We want to identify children who just aren't getting better and would be highly likely to have one of our immunophenotypes of interest. So the children are sampled at the study site. Their blood is processed locally, and I, I might add that the processing is, in most cases, done by research coordinators. It does not require high-end laboratory support to do this kind of testing. But those samples are then processed, frozen, and put in a box with dry ice and overnight shipped to me at my laboratory in Columbus, Ohio. And the next morning, we're able to tell the site whether or not their patient is immunoparalyzed, how inflamed they are. And the biomarkers of inflammation that we use, we use CRP and ferritin, both relatively crude compared to very fancy cytokine panels that could be done, but both very pragmatic as it relates to being clinically available at sites to be used someday, hopefully in the not too distant future, when we know how to target these therapies. Well, so let's say that the blood sample comes back and the results come back that indicate that the person has immunoparalysis, very severe reduction of the TNF response. And their inflammation is not so high to make me worry that they have HLH or MAS. We measure that by choosing a ferritin cutoff less than 2,000 for that population. Then that patient would be eligible for the GRACE-2 study, or GMCSF for a reversal of immunoparalysis and sepsis-induced MODs. GRACE-2, because GRACE-1 was the pilot study that demonstrated feasibility and dose and route of administration for GMCSF to be used in this study. So if the patients are randomized into GRACE-2, 
they would receive seven days of GMCSF, which is short for granulocyte macrophage colony stimulating factor, a drug which has been FDA approved for nearly 30 years for the restoration of bone marrow following uh, chemotherapy and transplantation, and more recently for radiation sickness. And this drug, which was designed to reconstitute the immune system in patients who've had their immune system decimated by myeloablative therapy, we believe that the patients need half of the FDA-approved dose because their immune system isn't gone, it's just confused. We need to reactivate and reorient it. Anyway, the patients get that GMCSF for seven days, and we perform serial blood sampling on them, both during the course of their GMCSF therapy and then for a week following, because we would like to know if they relapse. That doesn't drive therapy in the trial because that presents some unblinding challenges, but we will, in retrospect, be able to understand whose immune function remained good and whose immune function either didn't respond or relapsed after. Now, let's say the patient doesn't have immunoparalysis, but they do have hyperinflammation. Or their inflammation is so high that I, I really can't give them GMCSF because they, they might have HLH or MAS. Well, then they would become eligible for the TRIPS trial, or targeted reversal of inflammation in pediatric sepsis-induced MODs. For this, we use the drug Anakinra, or recombinant human IL-1 receptor antagonist. Now, I know that not too long ago in this conversation, I referenced how anti-cytokine therapies didn't work. So why on earth would we try this therapy, which was designed and developed in the early 90s as a sepsis therapeutic, but failed in adult phase three clinical trials? Well, it's because we think we are giving the drug in the TRIPS trial specifically to patients who are likely to benefit from it. And we are withholding that drug from patients that we think would be unlikely to benefit from it those that might benefit from immunostimulation, for example, or those with normal immune function and low inflammation. So the TRIPS subjects will get anakinra at one of four different doses. We don't know the dose of anakinra that is most likely to reverse inflammation and improve outcomes in this population. So the TRIPS trial is a phase two slash three study in which we adaptively randomize subjects to get either placebo or one of four different doses of anakinra, two of which are within the current FDA dosing range, and two of which are higher than the current FDA-approved dosing range for anakinra. And we give that for seven days and perform serial blood sampling. As an aside, we perform serial blood sampling on the observational cohorts as well, the one with normal immune function, low inflammation, and the one that has ferritin levels greater than 10,000 that might themselves be at very high risk for HLH or MAS. Those kids we don't want to give placebo to, so we simply tell the clinicians what the results were, encourage them to repeat them locally, and then we perform immune surveillance on those patients. What I've hopefully impressed upon you is how we are trying to use real-time prospective immunophenotyping to give what we hope is the right drug to the right patient and avoid having the cohorts muddied by subjects who are unlikely to benefit from the drug or potentially even be harmed by them. Mark, what do people do if they want to find out more about this? They're, you know, they're a clinician, they're interested in the trial. How do they find out more about it? How can they contact you? I'm very happy to answer uh, any and all questions around the precise uh, trial, as well as anything else in the field of immunoparalysis and pediatric critical illness. And I'm happy to have you share my email address. I'd happily hear from folks. 
Terrific, Mark. Thank you for this conversation. You know, we're finally making strides, learning from decades of, of work that failed, which is science, and that's fine. But what you're doing is you're, you're really pushing us into where we need to be, which is trying to understand at an individual level and not at a population level what's going on with this child with sepsis and then treat that patient accordingly. So it's, it's very ambitious, the precise trial, but it's such an advance in our field. And so on behalf of colleagues around the world, we thank you for all that you're doing to advance the field of immune phenotyping for our children with sepsis. Well, I very much appreciate it. And I would be remiss if I did not acknowledge and laud my colleagues and partners in the Capcorn Network. It's an amazing group of investigators and an amazing network infrastructure that allows us to do this work. And I'm so thankful for them. This has been a production of Open Pediatrics. You can find the resources and journal articles referenced in this podcast in the description. We have more podcasts like this one available everywhere you get your podcasts. Visit openpediatrics.org for more information. 